Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Brad Jacob, on some recent important U.S. Supreme Court rulings, including a major one touching on freedom of speech. And in a case like this, where there are so many other places uh, where you could get your same-sex wedding webpage, court says this doesn't meet strict scrutiny. She has a free speech right to not build that website that violates her religious conscience. Brad, Jacob, next. In recent weeks, the U.S. Supreme Court has issued rulings which bear directly upon subjects of great interest to the Christian community. To discuss them, we contacted Professor Brad Jacob, Associate Dean for Academic Programs at Regent University School of Law. Brad, I'd like to ask you first about a major First Amendment free speech decision known as 303 Creative versus Alanis. If you would, give us the background to this case. Yeah, 303 Creative is is part of a very common pattern that we're seeing these days. And it's really the biggest issue, I think, in religious liberty mm. today. And it comes from the Supreme Court's Obergefell uh, decision, where they required all 50 states to recognize same-sex marriage. And in, in the Obergefell case, the court took great pains to say, well, of course, Many people don't agree, and they're entitled to hold those opinions, and the government isn't going to mess with that. And But of course, the government is messing with that. And we're seeing uh, these non-discrimination laws all over the country that are really too broad. And let me, let me explain what I mean by that. It's mm. not just that they're adding new categories like sexual orientation and gender identity and marital status. But these laws and the way they're interpreted in the state courts don't draw a distinction between discriminating against a person and not wanting to participate in an activity. So the, the fact pattern is very common. We saw it very famously a few years back with Jack Phillips and Masterpiece Cake Shop. Phillips is a guy who says, I have gay customers. I'm happy to have gay customers. Gay people come in or trans people and they can buy bread and they can buy cookies. They can buy a cake off the shelf. But if you ask me to create a specialized cake for a same-sex wedding, I say, I don't want to do that. And that shouldn't be treated as sexual orientation discrimination in a perfect world. He He's not against gay people. There's just this ceremony, this event that he doesn't want to be forced to use his professional skills for. 303 Creative is is basically the same thing, except Ms. Smith uh, designs wedding websites rather than decorating cakes. But she says, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe that God wants marriage to be a man between a man and a woman. So I make man-woman websites. I don't want to use my skills for something that I believe is wrong. Neither Jack Phillips nor Ms. Smith are trying to stop the gay people from getting married. They're just saying, go do your thing. I'd rather not participate. 
And of course, the reality is there's huge numbers of other cake decorators, huge numbers of other website designers, flower arrangers, people who rent out rehearsal halls, you know, all this, every service you can think of, most people don't care. They're just fine whether they put two little plastic grooms on the cake or two little plastic brides or one of each. Most bakers don't care. This is very targeted. They're trying to find the people who have a moral objection to same-sex marriage, and they're trying to stamp out that worldview. And I think that's a problem. I think somehow in this country, we've got to get past this culture wars mentality and start saying, let's live and let live. Because the Christians and the traditional moral believers are not going away, and the LGBT community is not going away. We have to live in the same country. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to coexist. And these kind of lawsuits make it very difficult. So Laurie Smith, uh, in this particular case we're talking about, challenged a Colorado law. It was a, a preemptive kind of a thing. She hadn't been asked yet to create a same-sex wedding website, but she challenged this Colorado law. Can you tell us what the Colorado law says, essentially, and, and why she preemptively challenged it before she was even asked to? Absolutely. And it's the same law that Jack Phillips ran into in Colorado. Okay. And it's a law that says you may not, dis people in, in places of public accommodation may not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, Places of public accommodation is a tricky thing. That was originally a very narrow concept. Uh, it actually originated way back in Britain centuries ago when the government would essentially give a monopoly to uh, someone to put an inn uh, on the highway, a day's journey from the city, and they got monopoly business. And as part of that, they had required to essentially take uh, whoever came down the road. It, it's read much more broadly today, and it doesn't just apply to hotels and restaurants, almost any business today. I mean, there are cases saying that the Boy Scouts are a place of public accommodation and uh, a parade is a place of public accommodation. So that's read very broadly. But that's what the law says. It's pretty simple. And Colorado, uh, the Civil Rights Commission has said, well, Ms. Smith, your website design business is a place of public accommodation under our law. And if you make opposite sex websites, but you don't make same sex marriage websites, you are discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation. Okay, so she challenged that. And so what was the court's ruling? I mean, they were six to three on her side. And can you talk a little bit about the rationale, both pro and con? Yes. Um, the, the six justices in the majority um, looked at this and said, designing a website is First Amendment protected free speech. It is creative activity, creative expression. You know, they sometimes kind of take free speech and free press together and they talk about it as freedom of expression, whether it's written or oral, whatever it may be. And um, they said that's what designing a uh, website is. It is communicative communicative activity. And the court said, um, if the government is making a content-based restriction on someone's communicative activity, like forcing them, compelling a speaker to say a message that they don't want to say, 
that mm. is almost always going to be unconstitutional. The court would apply what we lawyers call strict scrutiny, uh, which means that the only time the government can win is if it's doing something incredibly important and it's using the narrowest possible means to get there. And in a case like this, where there are so many other places uh, where you could get your same-sex wedding webpage, court says, this doesn't meet strict scrutiny. She has a free speech right to not build that website that violates her religious conscience. Did the um, majority uh, say something to the effect of what you just said, that the government can't force or compel uh people to say things that they don't believe. Correct. It, it is a compelled speech case. Now, the dissenters take the view this is not about her free speech. This is about her hating gay people. This is discrimination against a, an abused class of citizens, and we're not going to let her engage in business conduct that is showing this hatred and contempt uh, for for LGBT people. Mm. But the majority said, that's not what's going on here. This isn't anybody hating. He's not just like Jack Phillips. She's not refusing to serve gay customers. And indeed, even if a straight person, a heterosexual person walked into her business and said, I'd like you to build uh, a same-sex wedding website, she would turn that person down. It's not about the identity or the condition of the customer. She just says, this is an event that I don't want to participate in. If if you want an analogy, it would be if uh, if you had a progressive cake baker or website designer, let's use the cake baker. Mm, yeah. Someone walks into the progressive cake bakery and says, I'm putting together a big Donald Trump rally, and I want you to make me a cake in the shape of a big red MAGA cap with Make America Great Again on the front of it. And the proprietor says, I think that's awful. I hate Donald Trump. I don't want to make a MAGA cake. Shouldn't that person, it's not that he doesn't serve Republicans. It's not that he doesn't serve Donald Trump fans. He's just saying, I don't want to be part of that event. I don't want to be part of that activity. And, and I, in my view, they're the same case. Whether you're conservative, whether you're liberal, what side you're on doesn't matter. Um, we shouldn't be forcing business people to support activities that violate their moral conscience. Now, unfortunately, 303 Creative doesn't go that far. 303 Creative only applies if you can characterize the service as First Amendment free speech. And in many cases, that won't be true. You know, the website is free speech. The cake, maybe. Mm. It's a close call. What if you're the person who rents out a building to hold wedding receptions in, or the person who caters barbecue to the wedding reception? That's not First Amendment expressive activity. I don't think that person should be forced to go to the Trump rally or the same-sex wedding or whatever else, you know, the, the Klan meeting, whatever they are morally opposed to. Mm -hmm. So in my view, 303 Creative solves part of this problem, but it doesn't solve the whole problem. Mm. And so in your opinion, I know I've got to move on and get to the next case, but 
why should this decision be of special interest to Christians uh, and or people of uh, other religious faith? Well, it it narrows the universe of people who can be persecuted in their business because they don't support some of the contemporary moral values. It doesn't solve all of those cases, but there is a universe of people like Ms. Smith who can now go about their business and not have to worry about being hauled into court and getting a big fine and and having their business messed up. Well, my guest today on His People is uh, Professor Brad Jacob. He is Associate Dean for Academic Programs at Regent University School of Law. We're talking about some important recent U.S. Supreme Court rulings. And uh, Brad, just one other uh, question. What kind of reactions have there been to this ruling? My understanding is they've been very strong, even extreme in some cases. It's about what I would have expected. Uh, Reactions on both sides are pretty strong. People who believe in religious liberty, people who believe in free speech, you know, uh, people like me who would describe themselves as liberal uh, in the not in the progressive sense of the word, but in the sense of believing in individual liberty, mm-hmm. there's a lot of celebration of uh, 303 Creative in in those quarters. Today, a lot of people who identify as progressive aren't liberal in that sense. They're not really very open to hearing other perspectives and giving other people their rights. And within the community that's very passionate about the LGBT uh, issues, there's strong opposition. This is viewed as just a, a horrific case by this conservative Republican court. Um, I see it as a pretty straightforward and correct uh, application of First Amendment law. Well, I'd like to ask you about a, another U.S. Supreme Court decision affecting, uh, c- certainly affecting Christians directly and uh, religious people in general, or so it seems to me, it's, I believe, Groff v. DeJoy, uh, dealing with the Christian postal worker's request to have Sundays off for his Sabbath observance. And of course, some might say, well, Saturday's the Sabbath, but we're not really talking about that, but that's that's how he characterized <laughs> it. Uh, but can you give us the, the background and the facts to, to this particular case? Sure. I mean, this is a postal worker um, who is very strong in his commitment to not working on the Lord's Day, or he calls it the Sabbath. Um, And obviously, Christian traditions and denominations uh, differ. You know, Seventh-day Adventists stick with the original Saturday, Sunday, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday Sabbath. And most uh, Christians treat Sunday as the day of rest. And for some Christians, it's yeah, okay, well, I still work on Sunday. I wish I could take the day off. But, you know, and some try to use it as a day for church and family. Um, You know, that's kind of been my life is if I absolutely have to work on Sunday, I will, but Mm -hmm. I try to avoid it if I can avoid it. But for some people, it is a very strong conviction that God does not want them to do work uh, on Sunday. So uh, we've got a man who took uh, took a job as a postal carrier because, of course, the mail only gets delivered six days a week, and he was always guaranteed to have Sundays off. And then the United States Postal Service started contracting with Amazon to do deliveries on Sunday. And all of a sudden, being a postal carrier is no longer a six-day-a-week job. It's a seven-day-a-week job. And so they're having to try to move shifts around and cover 
uh, the deliveries on Sunday. And the reality is, whether they're religious or not, most people really would prefer not to work on Sunday, uh, unless maybe you're an you're a Adventist or an Orthodox Jew or something. But most people, you know, whether it's just to watch football or whatever they're going to do, a lot mm -hmm. of people on Sunday off. So uh, this guy uh, says, uh, I, I can't work on Sunday. And Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 says that private employers may not discriminate on the basis of religion. And his argument is, if you make me work on my Sabbath, you are discriminating against me on the basis of religion. And for a little while, they tried to work it out. They tried to, you know, can you trade shifts? Can you get other people to cover? But eventually, the Postal Service just gave up and said, no, you're out of luck. We're, you know, work Sunday or find another job. And so he sues under Title VII, saying you have uh, not accommodated my religion. The statute says that employer has to accommodate a religious believer's practice unless that would cause undue hardship, undue hardship on the conduct of the business. Mm. Now, the problem here is that a bunch of years ago, uh, the court decided, the Supreme Court decided a case called Transworld Airlines versus Partisan. I don't think Transworld Airlines even exists anymore, does it? I haven't I, flown I, on it. In I years. don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but TWA versus Partisan, and the court in that case made a little comment where they said, well, the employer doesn't have to accommodate if it causes undue har hardship. And it's undue hardship if it's more than a de minimis burden hmm. on the employer. And of course, de minimis is one of those legal phrases that means really tiny, almost nothing, a little trivial burden. And so for the years since the Hardison case, we've been dealing with just kind of the gutting of that protection for religious practice in Title VII. And employers basically haven't had to accommodate religious believers or not. They could simply say, well, that's a more than a de minimis burden, so they throw it out, which seems like a terrible interpretation of the statute. Undue hardship is not the same thing as de minimis burden. I mean, hardship suggests that the business is really going to have to work to make this happen, and undue hardship is even a higher standard. That seems like you've got to really do some stuff business to accommodate the religious believer. And maybe that means reshifting some things on Sunday. Maybe mm -hmm. it means having to pay more overtime on Sunday so that other people will volunteer to work on Sunday. Maybe there are other things you have to do. So the court in, uh, in, in the Groff case said that de minimis line in the Hardison case was was a was a throwaway comment. It was out of context. We never meant to say that that's the standard for interpreting Title VII religious uh, discrimination. It is indeed an undue hardship standard. There's got to be some real pain, real cost to the employer before the employer can refuse to accommodate a religious request from an employee. Now, the court didn't actually decide the postal carrier's case because that 
standard had not been considered in the lower court. The Supreme Court doesn't want to make a factual determination. So the lower courts had just been saying, well, this would require more than de minimis, so he loses. The Supreme Court vacated that, sent it back down to start over and say, okay, try this, but find out whether getting him off on Sunday will really cause undue hardship on the Postal Service rather than a de minimis burden. So this is a statute that has been wrongly interpreted and damaged religious liberty for decades. And so just wonderful to have that go back uh, in, a, in a stronger setting. So being, going back to the lower court, uh, just wondering, I think what, what I've read is that in terms of the burden on the U.S. Postal Service, what people on that side of the equation say that it means that other workers have to pick up, say in this case, uh, Mr. Groff's work that he's not doing on Sunday, and that the morale also goes down at the U.S. Postal Service because he's getting some sort of special treatment. Uh, I mean, isn't that kind of, in a nutshell, what they're what they're saying in terms of the morale issue? Th- that is what they're saying, and 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 if your standard is any de minimis problem gets you out of the accommodation, well, that kind of sounds like at least a de minimis, mm. at least a teeny tiny little problem. But now they're going to have to go back and look at that and say, well, is that really an undue hardship? And how do you get around that? And and again, maybe it's uh, offering a higher pay rate. For people to, to encourage people so people start volunteering to work on sunday is that a cost for the postal service yes it may be a hardship but maybe it's not an undue hardship so this is all about the legal test this is about how high is the bar how hard does the does the employer have to work to try to accommodate the sincere beliefs of a religious employee and the court basically slap down decades of wrong interpretation of an old decision and said, no, the bar's pretty high. You've got to make some serious effort to accommodate the religious practices of your employees. And in this case, it's an evangelical Christian, but I mean, it could be, as you said, in a slightly different context, a Seventh-day Adventist, or it could be a Jewish individual or a Muslim or what have you, depending upon what they're... Absolutely. And- yeah, you see these accommodation cases in all kinds of of different, you know, can a Sikh wear a beard or can a Muslim wear a, you know, head covering and, you know, where, you know, if you've got a, uh, you know, if you've got a restaurant that, that, uh, you know, prides itself on its sexy waitresses, can a, can a Muslim woman wear what she believes is appropriate clothing? You know, these kind of cases come up all the time. And, and to say whatever your religion is applies to everybody. Um, the employer has to be making some significant accommodations of your sincerely held religious beliefs. And sometimes it'll be too much. You know, if I want a job with a full-time salary and say, yeah, but I, my religion tells me I can only work on Tuesdays between 3 and 4.15, you know, the employer doesn't have to accommodate crazy wild requests. But this uh, much increases the universe of winning claims by religious employees who just want to be able to keep their job and practice their faith. And in, in this, in the brief time we have left, Brad, I'm just wondering: is you are a constitutional expert and you, you teach constitutional law, and and uh, of course it's the U.S. Supreme Court that makes these final rulings on constitutional issues, constitutional questions uh, that are raised uh, across the country. And I'm wondering how, how obviously the the court 
changes depending upon its makeup. And I'm just wondering how you assess the these recent rulings and uh, e- even rulings prior to this um, from this current makeup of the court and where, where it may be heading in the future. Can you kind of, at least from where you sit, how, how you assess this particular sure, court? Sure, sure. Happy to do that, Bill. Um, you know, certainly the court has changed uh, in, in recent years. The, you know, the replacement of of uh, Justices Kennedy and Ginsburg uh, with Donald Trump appointees has had has had a huge mark on the court. I am one who doesn't like calling Supreme Court justices liberal or conservative. Mm. I don't particularly like identifying them by which party's president appointed them, um, because I think those are really overly simplistic. If I say someone's a conservative judge, that can mean so many things. It can mean they're a libertarian. It can mean they're a social conservative, a religious conservative. You know, the decision that I have railed against more than any other in my entire career uh, was a case called Employment Division versus Smith Hmm. in uh, 1990 that, that just did huge damage to the free exercise clause. And that decision was written by my old constitutional law professor and favorite of Christians everywhere, Antonin Scalia. Mm. And I thought that case was terrible. So to try to just label it that simplistically, I think is is not very helpful. We're already seeing so many cases in this last term were not 6-3 with the 6-3 you might expect, that they broke down in different ways. In particular, you you see the Chief Justice, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, sometimes siding uh, with Sotomayor and 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 Kagan and Jackson. Um, they can be unpredictable. Uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, appears to be following the mold of Justice Scalia in that you know we would call him conservative on some things, but very much defendant focused in criminal justice cases very protective of miranda rights mm-hmm. and and searches and seizures and all that so it's just a little more complicated i for me as a constitutional lawyer and a professor my fundamental question is not do i agree with the political or social values of the justices it's do the justices try to follow the constitution and let the political branches make law, or are they trying to impose their view of the right outcome on the rest of the country? And in my view, this current court has made huge step forward in correcting some of the excesses of the Warren and Berger courts when the justices decided that they just needed to solve America's social problems. And when the court gets back to being the court and just saying, we basically enforce the rule book. We make sure that Congress and the states do what they're supposed to do and then let the policy judgments be made in those forums. Uh, You know, the Dobbs case, Roe versus Wade was a horrible decision constitutionally, whether you like abortion or not, was indefensible. And they say, no, it's not in the constitution. So I love that trend. I love that the court seems to be understanding their role better. Although, of course, the flip side of that is that puts pressure on Congress to actually legislate, and our current Congress doesn't like to legislate. They much prefer to give sound bites to the most extreme people in their fan bases on both extremes. Mm-hmm. And it's a, we live in this really frustrating political world. Yeah. So 
That's my long answer to your short question. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Professor Brad Jacob, Associate Dean for Academic Programs at Regent University School of Law. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Thomas Ricard on the Book of Jude and its warnings about false teachers. But we want to be able to remain true to what God has given us in His Word, and, and we want to hold to the true gospel, because if we depart from the true gospel, then we have no gospel at all. That's tomorrow, at the same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.